Welcome to the Wiggly Podcast. It's a show about gardening, farming and the good life. And we sort of live it in Lower Blakemere Farm. And I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers. And this week is a special. It's a grain special. So if you're expecting little tidbits on worms and wiggliness, the only thing you're going to get is Monty's Monty cast. And after that, we will go to Farmer Phil, who interviews William Fox from the global giant Cargill about being a grain trader and buying Farmer Phil's wheat and how that all works out. So if you're up for it, we're up for it. But first, here he is, Monty, with this week's MontyCast, a wiggly fact on wiggliness. The MontyCast, a weekly fact on wiggliness. Around one acre of land is used to supply the food for each person in the world. Another MontyCast next week. Thank you, Monty. And avid listeners view five stars on the American iTunes. Thank you very much. Warlock1956. Wonderful. I can only say a huge thank you to the Wiggly team for their constant cheerful banter. Loved the brochure when I sent for it too. Heather and Farmer Phil make for entertaining listening every time. And Richard even occasionally makes sense. (laughs) It was through him I found the podcast originally. I don't believe this next bit. He also convinced me to purchase a can of worms, which has become central to my recycling and garden efforts. Thanks to one and all. Wow, thank you, Warlock. And good Lord, Richard sold something. Thank you, Richard. Rich has been out in the garden and he will let us know news of that very shortly. But first, here we go. Farmer Phil meets William Fox, Cargill's grain trader. Suffice to say, he wouldn't let me at him. You know it, listener. It had to be just his interview, exclusively Farmer Phil's. After all, they do buy stuff from the farm. He wouldn't let me do it. That's it. Right, well, here we are at the kitchen table. I'm sat opposite William Fox, who I've known for quite a long time now, really, and, and he turns up every so often to beg, sorry, buy some um, of Unfortunately, our cereals. Unfortunately, this morning it will be begging, Philip. <laughs> So some of our cereals that don't go for seed, notably wheat. He works for Frontier Limited, who are a part of Cargill's, the world-renowned grain traders. And so I thought, William, I'd better ask you, I mean, the bit that I see of you, I buy some fertiliser from you and sell you some wheat and barley from time to time, but what actually is your job description? Are you a grain trader? Do you spend your time on the computer trading options in this, that and the other? Unfortunately, no, nothing as glamorous as that. The role that I take within the company, as Philip alluded to, Frontier is half owned by Cargill and the other half is owned by a company called ABF, which sort of household names of Allied Mills, King's Meal Bread, Rivita, uh, these sorts of people. Basically, my role in life is to link people like yourself into the Cargill and ABF industries. So acting basically as a broker between the farmer and the consumer. 
and obviously the nearest consumer to you here is Sun Valley Poultry in Hereford and Sun Valley at the moment just uh, starting to expand again they're taking somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred tons of wheat per day obviously to to mill and go back out as poultry feed the other side you know slightly further north of you I would buy grain to go up to our Trafford plant which is obviously that takes about a hundred lorry loads of wheat a day three thousand tons and that's all used for starch production so no I don't sit on on the desk all day and trade futures we have four or five people dedicated in our office in Lincoln that basically manage all the risk day to day they're setting the prices they're discussing with sister companies and other people who want to be buying grain where the price is so fortunately or unfortunately end up being the person who gives the farmer the good or the bad news and unfortunately today in light of the USDA reports, the USDA obviously being the... the I the, knew the, they would have a hand I was going to say, the, the United States Department of Agriculture every month come out with a stock taking, for want of a better word, a supply and demand table of where they see what, what's being produced, what's being consumed. And yesterday's report was very, very negative. Massive, massive production of soya in South America. The biggest ever carry out of wheat in the states they're just not selling it enough partially as a result of the recession you know people are just not eating as much and my personal opinion of wheat consumption in the uk it's dropped because all of a sudden most houses now have got these little food bins and where you would buy two loaves of bread on a friday with your weekly shop you'd have one brown and one white and you'd eat half of them and throw the other half away. Now, all of a sudden, when you put half a loaf of bread in your little food caddy bin, it does show up, and people have all of a sudden changed their eating habits, and consumption is definitely back. People, It is good not to buy as much as people have been buying. It is interesting to me that a very small percentage change by individuals, when multiplied globally, and we all talk about if every... Chinese person does something different, the world moves. Absolutely. And it's well, the classic is that they all want two, uh, two bottles of beer instead of one, isn't it? Well, that's the classic thing where I'm concerned. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, having said that, but you would also be involved so that when you quote me a price for some of our wheat, there are two elements to that. There is the inherent value of the wheat to you, and that is set by the sound of it according to the market so where else you could buy it where else other people are selling it but there's also and this is probably where the advantages of Sun Valley being local to us there's a transport element which is what in many cases gives the differentials between different potential buyers for our crop so what I'm getting at is that the transport has got ever more expensive yeah so that something close to us is going to give us a significantly better price Absolutely. than if we get a pound a tonne more but it happens to be 50 miles further away we're losing. This is absolutely it and it comes down to whether it's food miles on, on moving your livestock, it's the same with the grain, everything. You, know, you happen to be on one of the main runs of the Cargill or the, the Sun Valley feed lorries and obviously what we want to do is if we buy wheat from you we, there's a pickup which we can split between the two of us on transport by using those lorries that are going out delivering poultry feed 
coming back in here, loading feed wheat up, taking it back into the mill, and you're then utilizing the back load. So therefore there's a win for you, slightly better prices, a win for us because we're utilizing the back load and cutting down on the number of trucks around. Now, when I were a lad, which I would have to confess is now some many years ago. Me too. I remember when my father used to entertain your equivalent of the time, but there would be many more of you. There would be perhaps half a dozen different people who would phone him up and say, can I come and see you and take some samples? And if we did a deal, they produce these beautiful embossed purchase orders and I've still yeah. got some upstairs, they're all the colours and they're embossed printed, they're beautiful things. But there would be at least half a dozen of them competing for the crop that we produced. Now, as far as I can see, in my experience, there are probably two other people apart from you who I could phone up and expect them to get near to your price, but they would rarely do better than match it because of this transport element. Does that have a downward pressure on all prices? Because really what I'm saying is that with fewer buyers, you've cornered out your areas. I think what's happened is the agricultural industry is contracted. It's become as part of everything, whether it's through podcasts or anything else. Your communication has sped the market up. Basically, the prices are changing minute by minute. There is less people on the road. It used to be that the price was set, and it may be that price for a month at a time. So if you had people out on the road driving around visiting farms, the prices were not the issue. Now it's become slightly less personal, and there would be fewer of me driving around the countryside. Because the markets are moving so much quicker, you have to be sat in front of screens. You have to be what I buy this at lunchtime today I then need to get booked in and immediately hedge its risk because if the currency moves, the buyer changes his mind and so on. These things are happening very, very quickly. The second thing that's happening is some of the companies that were around in your younger days are not around now mainly because of the financial requirements. You know, we were talking about transportation savings, but money, the money that we turn over, as a company now, we are turning over just over £1 billion. Just the frontier piece. Just the frontier piece. That's without Cargill, that's without the ABF. You know, there is a massive consumption of money, and farmers need to know, at the end of the day, if you spent 12 or 14 months looking after and growing a product, that they're going to get paid for it. Every so often, we as farmers, and I don't claim to be in any way informed in this area, but we're told that, in inverted commas, the commodity traders have tucked into the grain market or whatever and artificially moved the price. Now, they're not interested in buying or selling grain particularly, other than making money on the turn, and they certainly don't want to see a lorry load of the stuff. Now, is that right, and is that something that happens more? Yeah, it is happening, and as, as I alluded to before, the markets are moving quicker, and quicker and quicker. Stocks and shares don't seem to be the in thing for investment people, commodities, whether it's grain, sugar, pork bellies, these sorts of things, or whether it's down to you know, gold, silver. You know, everybody wants to be part and parcel of commodities. And it is absolutely right. Two years ago, when we saw the speculators stepping into the market, they took the grain market where there was a, a perceived shortage. They pushed it from somewhere around £100 to £180 and then back down to 100 
all within the space of about six months. And as a farmer and as a trader, as a trader it comes with inherent risk, obviously, because the markets are moving so quick. But as a farmer, it, it causes all sorts of problems in terms of planning, in terms of budgeting, everything to do with massive price movements like that. What we need from the farming point of view is a steady increase and a return on capital to be able to invest into the future. Whereas what we've seen, because we've seen these massive swings, partially because of speculators, partially because of of other factors, is uncertainty in the market, which is leading farmers to thinking, can we keep going? We're now, one minute we're making money, the next minute we're hemorrhaging money and the banks are shouting at us. Are you suggesting that both from your point of view and from the farmer's point of view there ought to be restrictions on who can trade in what? A little bit, I'm thinking of the banking crisis over the last two years. The suggestion has been that the hedge fund operators are going to have their wings clipped. Well, they, funnily enough, the hedge fund boys did have their wings clipped and there is already in place, certainly in the States, they have to declare their positions in various commodities. And so are you thinking that in order to take a little bit of the volatility out of it because I mean there is part of me that says volatility is quite a good thing because I quite it is as long as as long as you're making some money out of it but doubling and halving gets a bit exciting when you're based on an annual cycle of growing stuff and and also the unfortunate thing is it tends to be the people who need it most who are for not forced who are encouraged by the banks to sell early to lock into a margin who miss the upside of these swings and then the following year don't sell it and catch the downside. So what I'm saying is that for the vast majority of people, a lot more stability with gentle increments and a return on capital is what farmers require. But at the same time, you're probably suggesting that farmers ought to fairly swiftly wise up on the idea of protecting their own positions with various hedges we've we've already seen a massive move already that when farmers are in a position and are showed a price in the market that gives them a return then they should lock into a percentage of what they're likely to produce and this idea of right we're planted in September October and we forget about it until it's in the barn a year later and we take whatever the price is given to us at the time. There is, with the various different industrial things coming on tap, we talked a little bit earlier about Cargill have got this starch plant up in Manchester taking, I think it's about 800,000 tonnes a year. There's two new bioethanol plants, one in Teesport, which is now just coming up to half production, and there's another one coming on tap in June this year, These are big industrial units which have the ability to be able to sell things. They are constant buyers of grain and therefore, like in the States, the farmers over here need to be locking into margins. When they can see a positive margin, they need to be locking into some. Certainly in the States, you will see very little grain planted without it already being hedged on the Chicago Board of Trade, which is their equivalent of our stock stock market for, for commodities in the States. Now, I would be uh, in trouble with she who shall be obeyed if I didn't address the idea that Cargill's, as a global company, within some circles, don't have a very good 
press in as much that many people, and to some extent myself included, would regard them as too large and too powerful within the market. Now, what you've just described is actually a market that promotes the survival of large and powerful businesses because they're the ones who can take the knocks and they're the ones who can afford to take advantage of the, the good times. Do you, and I don't really want to put yourself in, in to, or ask you to put yourself in difficulties with your masters, but do you feel that Cargill's are trying to improve that press? Do you think that they are in any way arrogant in terms of, well, we're, we're the big boys, we can move the market, which is probably they're one of the few who can? Uh, I, you know, I think the thing you have to remember is uh, the, the saying that nobody is bigger than the market. You know, we've seen it in various things with the bankruptcies that have gone on in the, in the States recently. Nobody is bigger than the market. You never corner the market. And I think Cargill certainly had, uh, when I entered the trade 20 odd years ago, you know, Cargill was one of the, uh, you know, the big iconic grain businesses. Now it's really an industrial business, which is totally integrated right down to the farm level. It wants its, it needs its farmers because at the end of the day, without its farmers, its in industry can't operate. It wants to keep moving forward. It wants to provide information. I think you need the likes of Cargill or Frontier. You know, the amount of money that we are reinvesting in ourselves, in agriculture in general, you know, I talk about Frontier, which is obviously reinvesting in the UK, is enormous. And without that, and that opening to the market, farmers are going to be lost again. And the alternative is you go down the cooperative route, which is what's mm. happened elsewhere in, in Europe. But the UK farmer is still very, very independent. I would agree with that. I think that another my question was that certainly in the UK it is dissimilar to how these firms operate in the US. But in the US, and I don't necessarily single out Cargill for this because I can think of several others that do the same thing, but the idea is to completely corner, wholly integrate both sides of the market. So they sell the farmer the seed on the contract, they sell the farmer the advice of what to do with it and then sell him the chemicals to put on the ground and the payback the other way is that the farmer is contracted to sell the crop back to the company. Yeah, yeah. And they're taking and the margin. They don't like it. And if there's a competitor comes into the area, they just buy the competitor out or they compete until they push them out of business. And the farmers don't like it because they feel unsurprisingly pinched. Now, I know Cargill's there are areas in which they do this and Cargill's certainly in America have quite a lot to do with meat production mm. to varying degrees of popularity through some of their subsidiaries and it's this degree of integration that I agree with you that in this country British farmers would be in a pretty sorry state without the likes of Frontier to provide the link but in America they appear to me to have taken it several steps further and possibly steps too far. I think the difficulty is like everything. You know, we look over the, the. We look here in the UK. You have Sun Valley, Cargill own it, but we need the Hereford farmers to provide the the wheat to go in. We then have the other farmers to be able to, you know, to, to be able to grow the chicken. You know, we've got the the plants up in the north. You know, Frontier is here as an arm of Cargill and a route to the production. 
and that is it. And in the States, in the same way, they are more integrated. They have uh, maybe developed themselves slightly further than, than we have over here. But at the end of the day, you can never fully corner the market. Never fully corner the market. There is always a choice. I would agree with you in this country, but uh, from what I understand in the States, they've managed to get to the point that there is no choice because they have said, if you want our seed, whether it's a particular variety or a GM, this yeah, or yeah. that, yeah. you can only have it if you sell it back to us. And they, but we've, it's we've done that. We've done that here in the UK. We, you know, if we've tapped into a certain um, particular seed, we, you know, we, if we happen to have a particular seed, you want to maximise your your opportunity on it, your business Absolutely. opportunity, and you, and you want to be able to buy it back. You have varieties um, for specific tasks that you have a market absolutely. for, for which you can offer a premium. You know, to in me, the same that's way that there is. You know, at the moment there is a massive push for British wheat in all of Rankovis's mm. bread. Mm. You know, we as a Cargill or as Frontier don't own the rights to the variety that's, yeah. that's there, and that's done by a competitor. You could say a similar thing about that, that they are maybe cornering it. I would say that ultimately they've done a very good thing. They've produced something that the mill wanted, it's been grown here in the UK. It's providing some security for the farmers who are growing it for the mill. Um, I think you know there, there's lots of different ways around. I think that's probably quite. I mean, there are those who have been trying for many years to breed a replacement to that variety, and we've had several varieties here. Which, oh well, it might, it might. Oh no, it won't. And I think that in this country there still is the competition, and our proximity to Europe hopefully will maintain that competition. In America, it sounds to me as if it's a little bit different. Whether it'll change, I don't know. But in the meantime, the good news is that because we still at least have you to come and see us, we have the opportunity for the odd day shooting. And well, that's a, it. We need you know, a bit of shooting. Ride round to, to the pub. And I know that you and your compatriot have been seen on assorted golf courses in the past. And so... At I'm least glad you didn't we will enjoy we a stride of a, a stride of a horse out hunting as well. Well, we were we one day a week to do any work, but no, to, no, no. anyway, thank you very much for that. And now I think we'll adjourn to the pub. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. I hope you listen in next week. We love making a podcast and we love having you on board. If you want to follow me, go to Twitter at Wiggles. Join our Facebook group at the moment. They are, of course, on about how to harvest the compost from your wormery, all the spring stuff that's going on. And if you want to come to Facebook, just search on Wiggly Wigglers. You'll find us there. Our website, www.wigglywigglers.co.uk, has the most amazing videos in amongst the products now so come and have a look and then you can buy a can of worms or a worm cafe direct from us thanks for listening bye from me Technically, the guy in America didn't say he bought his can of worms from us. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I can assume, can't I? <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> oh, of course, didn't get a pay off. No. <laughs> <laughs> I had a rich. <laughs> no.